When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week... I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. If you would like to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash justsleeppod. Tonight, I will be reading Lorna Doon by Artie Blackmore. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1. Elements of Education If anybody cares to read a simple tale told simply, I, John Ridd, of the parish of Orr, in the county of Somerset, yeoman and churchwarden, have seen and had a share in some doings of this neighbourhood which I will try to set down in order, God sparing my life and memory. And they who light upon this book should bear in mind not only that I write for the clearing of our parish from ill fame and calumny, but also a thing which will, I trow, appear too often in it, to wit, that I am nothing more than a plain, unfettered man, not read in foreign languages as a gentleman might be, 
nor gifted with long words, even in mine own tongue, save what I may have won from the Bible or Master William Shakespeare, whom in the face of common opinion I do value highly. In short, I am an ignoramus, but pretty well for a yeoman. My father being of good substance, at least as we reckon in Exmoor, and seized in his own right for many generations, of one and that the best and largest of the three farms into which our parish is divided, or rather the cultured part thereof. He, John Ridd, the elder, churchwarden, an overseer, being a great admirer of learning and well able to write his name, sent me his only son to be schooled at Tiverton, in the county of Devon. For the chief boast of that ancient town, next to its woollen staple, is a worthy grammar school, the largest in the west of England, founded and handsomely endowed in the year 1604 by Master Peter Blundell of that same place, Clothier. Here, by the time I was twelve years old, I had risen into the upper school and could make bold with Eutropius and Caesar by aid of an English version, and as much as six lines of Ovid. Some even said that I might, before manhood, rise almost to the third form, being of a persevering nature, albeit by full consent of all, except my mother, thick-headed. But that would have been, as I now perceive, an ambition beyond a farmer's son, for there is but one form above it, and that made of masterful scholars, entitled rightly monitors. So it came to pass, by the grace of God, that I was called away from learning while sitting at the desk of the junior first in the upper school and beginning the Greek verbs. My eldest grandson makes bold to say that I never could have learned ten pages further on, being all he himself could manage with plenty of stripes to help him. I know that he hath more head than I, though never will he have such body, and I am thankful to have stopped betimes with a meek and wholesome headpiece. But if you doubt of my having been there, because now I know so little, go and see my name, John Ridd, graven on that very form. Forsooth, from the time I was strong enough to open a knife and to spell my name, I began to grave it into the oak, first of the block whereon I sat, and then of the desk in front of it, according as I was promoted from one to other of them. And there my grandson reads it now, at this present time of writing, and hath fought a boy for scoffing at it, John rid his name, and done again in Winkies, a mischievous but cheerful device in which we took great pleasure. This is the manner of a Winky, which here I set down, lest child of mine or grandchild dare to make one on my premises. If he does, I shall know the mark at once and score it well upon him. The scholar obtains, by prayer or price, a handful of saltpetre, and then with the knife, wherewith he should rather be trying to mend his pens, what does he do but scoop a hole where the desk is some three inches thick? This hole should be left with the middle exalted, and the circumference dug more deeply. Then let him fill it with saltpetre, all save a little space in the midst, 
where the boss of the wood is. Upon that boss, and it will be the better if a splinter of timber rise upward, he sticks the end of his candle of tallow, or rat's tail as we called it, kindled and burning smoothly. Anon, as he reads by that light his lesson, lifting his eyes now and then it may be, the fire of candle lays hold of the Peter with a sputtering noise and a leaping. Then should the pupil seize his pen, and regardless of the nib, stir bravely, and he will see a glow as of burning mountains and a rich smoke, and sparks going merrily. Nor will it cease, if he stir wisely, and there be a good store of Peter, until the wood is devoured through, like the sinking of a well shaft. Now well may it go with the head of the boy, intent upon his primer, who betides to sit thereunder. But above all things, have good care to exercise his art before the master strides up to his desk in the early grey of the morning. Other customs, no less worthy, abide in the school of Blundell, such as the singeing of nightcaps, but though they have a pleasant savour and refreshing to think of, I may not stop to note them unless it be that goodly one at the incoming of a flood. The schoolhouse stands beside a stream not very large, called Loman, which flows into the broad river of X, about a mile below. This Loman stream, although it be not fond of brawl and violence, in the manner of our Lynn, yet is wont to flood into a mighty head of waters when the storms of rain provoke it, and most of all when its little comate called the Taunton Brook, where I have plucked the very best cresses that ever man put salt on, comes foaming down like a great roan horse and rears at the leap of the hedgerows. Then are the grey stone walls of London on every side encompassed. The veil is spread over with looking waters, and it is a hard thing for the day boys to get home to their suppers. And in that time, old Cop, the porter, so called because he hath copper boots to keep the wet from his stomach, and a nose of copper also, in right of other waters, his place is to stand at the gate, attending to the floodboards grooved into one another, and so to watch the torrents rise and not be washed away, if it please God he may help it. But long ere the flood hath attained this height, and while it is only waxing, certain boys of deputy will watch at the stoop of the drain holes, and be apt to look outside the walls when Cop is taking a cordial. And in the very front of the gate, just without the archway, where the ground is paved most handsomely, you may see in copy letters done a great PB of white pebbles. Now it is the custom and the law that when the invading waters, either fluxing along the wall from below the road bridge or pouring sharply across the meadows from a cut called Owen's Ditch, and I myself have seen it come both ways. Upon the very instant when the waxing element lips though it be but a single pebble of the founder's letters. It is in the license of any boy, soever small and undoctrined, to rush into the great schoolrooms, where a score of masters sit heavily, and scream at the top of his voice, P.B. Then with a yell, the boys leap up or break away from their standing. They toss their caps to the black-beamed roof, and happily the very books after them. And the great boys vex no more the small ones, 
and the small boys stick up to the great ones. One with another, hard they go to see the gain of the waters and the tribulation of cop, and are prone to kick the day boys out with words of scanty compliment. Then the masters look at one another, having no class to look to, and boys being no more left to watch. In a manner, they put their mouths up. With a spirited bang, they close their books and make invitation the one to the other for pipes and foreign cordials, recommending the chance of the time and the comfort away from cold water. But lo, I am dwelling on little things and the pigeon's eggs of the infancy, forgetting the bitter and heavy life gone over me since then. If I am neither a hard man nor a very close one, God knows I have had no lack of rubbing and pounding to make stone of me. Yet can I not somehow believe that we ought to hate one another, to live far asunder and block the mouth, each of his little den, as do the wild beasts of the wood, and the hairy outrangs now brought over, each with a chain upon him? Let that matter be as it will. It is beyond me to unfold and mayhap of my grandson's grandson. All I know is that wheat is better than when I began to sow it. Chapter 2 An Important Item Now the cause of my leaving Tiverton School and the way of it were as follows. On the 29th day of November, the year of our Lord, 1673, the very day when I was twelve years old, and had spent all my substance in sweetmeats, with which I made a treat to the little boys, till the large boys ran in and took them. We came out of school at five o'clock, as the rule is upon Tuesdays. According to custom, we drove the day boys in brave route down the causeway from the school port, even to the gate where a cop has his dwelling and duty. Little it wrecked us and helped them less, that they were our founder's citizens and happily his own grand-nephews, for he left no direct descendants. Neither did we much inquire what their lineage was. For it had been long fixed among us, who were of the house and chambers, that these same day-boys were all caddies, as we had discovered to call it, because they paid no groat for their schooling and brought their own commons with them. In consumption of these, we would help them, for our fare in hall fed appetite, and while we ate their victuals, we allowed them freely to talk to us. Nevertheless, we could not feel, when all the victuals were gone, but that these boys required kicking from the premises of Blundell. And some of them were shopkeepers' sons, young grocers, fellmongers, and poulterers, and these, to their credit, seemed to know how righteous it was to kick them. But others were of high family, as any need be, in Devon, Carews and Boshiers and Bastards, and some of these could turn sometimes and strike the boy that kicked them. But to do them justice, even these knew that they must be kicked for not paying. After these charity boys were gone, as in contumely we call them, if you break my bag on my head, said one, how will feed thence tomorrow? And after old cop with a clang of iron had jammed the double gates in under the scruff stone archway, whereupon our Latin verses, done in brass of small quality, some of us, who were not hungry and cared not for the supper bell, 
having sucked much parliament and dumps at my only charges, not that I ever bore much wealth, but because I had been thrifting it for this time of my birth. We were leaning quite at dusk against the iron bars of the gate, some six or maybe seven of us, small boys all, and not conspicuous in the closing of the daylight and the fog that came at evening time, else Cop would have rated us up the green, for he was churly to little boys when his wife had taken their money. There was plenty of room for all of us, for the gate will hold nine boys close-packed, unless they be fed rankly, whereof is little danger. And now we were looking out on the road and wishing we could get there, hoping, moreover, to see a good string of pack horses come by with troopers to protect them. For the day boys had brought us word that someone intending their way to the town had lain that morning at Samford Peverley and must be in ere nightfall because Mr. Faggus was after them. Now Mr. Faggus was my first cousin and an honour to the family, being a North Moulton man of great renown on the highway from Barham Town even to London. Therefore, of course, I hoped that he would catch the packman, and the boys were asking my opinion as of an oracle about it. A certain boy, leaning up against me, would not allow my elbow room, and struck me very sadly in the stomach part, though his own was full of my parliament. And this I felt so unkindly, that I smote him straight away in the face, without tarrying to consider it, or weighing the question duly. Upon this, he put his head down, and presented it so vehemently at the middle of my waistcoat, that for a minute or more my breath seemed dropped, as it were, from my pockets, and my life seemed to stop from great want of ease. Before I came to myself again, it had been settled for us that we should move to the ironing box, as the triangle of turf is called, where the two causeways coming from the school porch and the hall porch meet, and our fights were mainly celebrated. Only we must wait until the convoy forces had passed, and the maker ring by candlelight, and the other boys would like it. But suddenly there came round the post where the letters of our founder are, not from the way of Taunton, but from the side of Loman Bridge, a very small string of horses, only two indeed, counting for one the pony, and a red-faced man on the bigger nag. Please ye, worshipful masters, he said, being fair to the gateway. Carney tell where our John Ridd be. Hayer be John Ridd, answered a smart little chap, making fun of John Fry's language. Show him up then, says John Fry, poking his whip through the bars at us. The other little chaps pointed at me, and some began to hallo, but I knew what I was about. Oh, John, John, I cried. What's the use of your coming now? And Peggy over the moors too. And it's so cruel cold for her. The holidays don't begin till Wednesday fortnight, John. To think of your not knowing that. John Fry leaned forward in the saddle and turned his eyes away from me. And then there was a noise in his throat like the snail crawling on a window pane. Oh, us knows that well enough, Master Jan. Reckon every oarman know that without going to school like you doth. Your mother have kept all the apples up, and old Betty turned the black puddings, and none dare set trap for a blackbird. All for thee, lad, 
every bit of it now for thee. He checked himself suddenly and frightened me. I knew that John Fry's way so well. And father? And father? Oh, how is father? I pushed the boys right and left as I said it. John, is father up in town? He always used to come for me and leave nobody else to do it. Father be at the crooked post, other side of Tellinghouse. He looked at the nag's ears as he said it, and being up to John Fry's ways, I knew that it was a lie. My heart fell like a lump of lead, and I leaned back on the stay of the gate and longed no more to fight anybody. A sort of dull power hung over me, like the cloud of a brooding tempest, and I feared to be told anything. I did not even care to stroke the nose of my pony Peggy, although she pushed it in through the rails, where a square of broader lattices, and sniffed at me, and began to crop gently after my fingers. But whatever lives or dies, business must be attended to, and the principal business of good Christians is, beyond all controversy, to fight with one another. Come up, Jack, said one of the boys, lifting me under the chin. He hit you and you hit him, you know. Pay your debts before you go, said a monitor, striding up to me, after hearing how the honour lay, rid, you must go through with it. Fight for the sake of the junior first, cried the little fellow in my ear. The clever one, the head of our class, who had mocked John Fry, and knew all about the errorists, and tried to make me know it. But I never went more than three places up, and then it was by accident, and I came down after dinner. The boys were urgent round me to fight, though my stomach was not up for it, and being very slow of wit, which is not chargeable on me, I looked from one to other of them, seeking any cure for it. Not that I was afraid of fighting, for now I had been three years at Blundell's and Foughton all that time, a fight at least once every week, till the boys began to know me. Only that the load of my heart was not sprightly, as of the hayfield. It is a very sad thing to dwell on, but even now, in my time of wisdom, I doubt it is a fond thing to imagine, and a motherly to insist upon, that boys can do without fighting, unless they be very good boys and afraid of one another. Nay, I said, with my back against the wrought iron stay of the gate, which was socketed in cops, house front, I will not fight thee now, Robin Snell, but wait till I come back again. Take coward's blow, Jack Ridd, then, cried half a dozen little boys, shoving Bob Snell forward to it because they all knew well enough, having striven with me ere now, and proved me to be their master. They knew, I say, that without great change, I would never accept that contumely. But I took little heed of them, looking in dull wonderment at John Fry and Smiler and the blunderbuss and Peggy. John Fry was scratching his head, I could see, and getting blue in the face by the light from Cop's parlour window, and going to and fro upon Smiler as if he were hard set with it. And all the time he was looking briskly from my eyes to the fist I was clenching. And methought he tried to wink at me in a covert manner. And then Peggy whisked her tail. Shall I fight, John? I said at last. I would, and you had not come. Christ will be done. I assume thee had better fight, Jan, he answered in a whisper through the gridiron of the gate. There will be a deal of fighting of worthy. 
He looked doubtfully down at the collar of his cowskin boots and the mire upon the horses, for the sloughs were exceedingly mucky. Peggy, indeed, my sorrel pony, being lighter of weight, was not crusted much over the shoulders. But Smiler, our youngest sledder, had been well in over his withers, and none would have deemed him a piebald save of red, mire, and black mire. The great blunderbuss, moreover, was choked with a dollop of slough cake, and John Fry's sad-coloured Sunday hat was endued with a plume of marish weed. All this I saw while he was dismounting, heavily and wearily, lifting his leg from the saddlecloth, as if with a sore crick in his back. By this time the question of fighting was gone, quite out of our discretion, for sundry of the elder boys, grave and reverend signiors, who had taken no small pleasure in teaching our hands to fight, to ward, to parry, to feign and counter, to lunge in the manner of swordplay, and the weaker child to drop on one knee when no cunning of fence might baffle the onset. These great masters of the art, who would far lether see us little ones practice it than themselves engage, six or seven of them came running down the rounded causeway, having heard that there had arisen a snug little mill at the gate. Now whether that word hath origin in a Greek term, meaning a conflict, as the best red boys asseverated, or whether it is nothing more than a figure of similitude from the beating arms of a mill, such as I have seen in counties where are no water brooks, but folk make bread with wind, it is not for a man devoid of scholarship to determine. Enough that they who made the ring intituled the scene a mill, while we who must be thumped inside it tried to rejoice in their pleasantry, till it turned upon the stomach. Moreover, I felt upon me now a certain responsibility, a dutiful need to maintain, in the presence of John Fry, the manliness of the Ridd family and the honour of Exmoor. Hitherto none had worsted me, although in the three years of my schooling I had fought more than three score battles and bedewed with blood every plant of grass towards the middle of the ironing box. And this success I owed at first to no skill of my own, until I came to know better, for up to twenty or thirty fights I struck as nature guided me, no wiser than a father longlegs in the heat of a lanthorn. But I had conquered, partly through my native strength and the Exmoor toughness in me, and still more that I could not see when I had gotten my belly full. But now I was like to have that of more, for my heart was down to begin with, and then Robert Snell was a bigger boy than I had ever encountered, and as thick in the skull and hard in the brain as even I could claim to be. I had never told my mother a word about these frequent strivings, because she was soft-hearted. Neither had I told my father, because he had not seen it. Therefore, beholding me still an innocent-looking child, with fair curls on my forehead, and no store of bad language, John Fry thought this was the very first fight that had ever befallen me, and so when they let him at the gate, with a message to the headmaster, as one of the monitors told Cop, and Peggy and Smiler were tied to the railings, till I should be through my business, John comes up to me with tears in his eyes and says, Don't thee go for to do it, John. Don't thee do it. But I told him that now it was much too late to cry off. So he said, The Lord be with thee, John, and turn thy thumb-knuckle inwards. 
It was not a very large piece of ground in the angle of the causeways, but quite big enough to fight upon, especially for Christians, who loved to be cheek by jowl at it. The great boys stood in a circle around, being gifted with strong privilege, and the little boys had leave to lie flat and look through the legs of the great boys. But while we were yet preparing, and the candles hissed in the fog cloud, old Phoebe, of more than fourscore years, whose room was over the hall porch, came hobbling out, as she always did, to mar the joy of the conflict. No one ever heeded her, neither did she expect it. But the evil was that two senior boys must always lose the first round of the fight by having to lead her home again. I marvel how Robin Snell felt. Very likely he thought nothing of it, always having been a boy of a hectoring and unruly sort. But I felt my heart go up and down as the boys came round to strip me, and greatly fearing to be beaten, I blew hot upon my knuckles. Then pulled I off my cut jerkin and laid it down on my headcap, and over that my waistcoat, and a boy was proud to take care of them. Thomas Hooper was his name, and I remember how he looked at me. My mother had made that little cut jerkin in the quiet winter evenings, and taken pride to loop it in a fashionable way, and I was loath to soil it with blood, and good filberds were in the pocket. Then up to me came Robin Snell, mayor of Exeter thrice since that, and he stood very square and looking at me, and I lacked not long to look at him. Round his waist he had a kerchief busking up his small clothes, and on his feet light pumpkin shoes, and all his upper raiment off. And he danced about in a way that made my head swim on my shoulders, and he stood some inches over me. But I, being muddled with much doubt about John Fry and his errand, was only stripped of my jerkin and waistcoat, and not comfortable to begin. Come now, shake hands, cried a big boy, jumping in joy of the spectacle, a third former nearly six feet high. Shake hands, you little devils. Keep your pluck up, and show good sport, and Lord love the better man of you. Robin took me by the hand and gazed at me disdainfully, and then he smote me painfully in the face ere I could get my fence up. What be about, lad, cried Joan Fry. Hit him again, Jan, will he? Well done, then, our Jan boy. For I'd replied to Robin now with all the weight and cadence of a pentamemoral caesura. A thing, the name of which I know, but could never make head nor tail of it. And the strife began in a serious style, and the boys looking on were not cheated. Although I could not collect their shouts when the blows were ringing upon me, it was no great loss, for John Fry told me afterwards that their oaths went up like a furnace fire. But to these we paid no heed or hap, being in the thick of swinging and devoid of judgment. All I know is, I came to my corner when the round was over, with very hard pumps in my chest and a great desire to fall away. Time is up, cried Head Monitor, ere ever I got a breath again. And when I fain would have lingered a while on the knee of the boy that held me, John Fry had come up, and the boys were laughing because he wanted a stable lanthorn and threatened to tell my mother. Time is up, cried another boy, more headlong than Head Monitor. If we count three before the come of thee, thwacked thou art, I must go to the women. I felt it hard upon me. He began to count. One, 
two, three. But before the three was out of his mouth, I was facing my foe with both hands up and my breath going rough and hot, and resolved to wait the turn of it. For I had found seat on the knee of a boy, sage and skilled to tutor me, who knew how much the end very often differs from the beginning. A rare, ripe scholar he was, and now he hath routed up the Germans in the matter of criticism. Sure, the clever boys and men have most love towards the stupid ones. Finish him off, Bob, cried a big boy, and that I noticed especially, because I thought it unkind of him after eating of my toffee as he had that afternoon. Finish him off, neck and crop. He deserves it for sticking up to a man like you. But I was not so to be finished off, though feeling in my knuckles now as if it were a blueness and a sense of chilblane. Nothing held except my legs, and they were good to help me. So this bout, or round if you please, was fought and warily by me, with gentle recollection of what my tutor, the clever boy, had told me, and some resolve to earn his praise before I came back to his knee again. And never, I think, in all my life sounded sweeter words in my ear than when my second and backer, who had made himself part of my doings now, and would have wept to see me beaten, said, Famously done, Jack, famously. Only keep your wind up, Jack, and you'll go right through him. Meanwhile, John Fry was prowling about, asking the boys what they thought of it, and whether I was like to be killed because of my mother's trouble. But finding now that I had fought in three score fights already, he came up to me woefully in the quickness of my breathing while I sat on the knee of my second, with a piece of spongious coralline to ease me of my bloodshed. And he says in my ears, as if he was clapping spurs into a horse, Never thee knack under, Jan, or never come nigh Hexmoor no more. With that, it was all up to me. A simmering buzzed in my heavy brain, and a light came through my eye places. At once, I set both fists again, and my heart stuck to me like cobbler's wax. Either Robin Snell should kill me, or I would conquer Robin Snell. So I went in again with my courage up, and Bob came smiling for victory, and I hated him for smiling. He let at me with his left hand, and I gave him my right between his eyes, and he blinked and was not pleased with it. I feared him not and spared him not, neither spared myself. My breath came again, and my heart stood cold, and my eyes struck fire no longer. Only I knew that I would die sooner than shame in my birthplace. How the rest of it was, I know not, only that I had the end of it, and helped to put Robin in bed. Good night.